Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL, AM and FM, and podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast, please subscribe to our podcast. It is my distinct honor to introduce our guest today, but he's really someone who needs no introduction. Congressman Jim Clyburn is the majority whip in the United States House of Representatives, meaning he's the third ranking Democrat and simply put one of the top leaders of our country. He was elected to Congress in 1993 from South Carolina. And like me, he was elected co-president of his freshman class. But unlike me, he's gone on to one of the most celebrated and distinguished government careers in living memory. When I was serving in Congress, I was honored to serve on his whip team. He is a personal hero of mine, and it's not going too far to say that in 2020, his decision to endorse then-candidate Joe Biden was probably more responsible than any other single act, President Biden winning the nomination, defeating Donald Trump, and quite literally saving America and giving what's going on with Russia right now, perhaps Western liberal democracy itself. So Congressman Clyburn, it's our great honor, and we welcome you to Beyond Politics. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. So let's plunge right in. You made some waves last week when you spoke uh, bluntly about people in this country who you referred to as domestic enemies and who seem to prefer to live in a corrupt autocracy rather than a constitutional democracy. Who are, your, who are you referring to and what do we do about them while not going down the road of fighting fire with fire and compromising our democratic values? Well, I think I was referring to those same people that the founders had in mind when our oath of office was developed to protect and defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's clear. So the anticipation was that we would have enemies from afar and enemies from within. And we see them hear from them every day. You and I both know that what unfolded here last year on January 6th is a demonstration of the enemies from within. And they are now being indicted, brought to justice in droves. Those are the people that I had in mind. I don't know them by name, but as they say in that community I grew up, we know them by their game. Congressman, in a note, what should the Congress do with a member of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene? What, what should we do in general when a member of Congress is breaking bread with white nationalists or otherwise exhibiting views or behaviors that go outside the bounds of acceptable public conduct? Well, I think the public needs to weigh in. We have an obligation to police our own, and it ought to start within our caucuses. Yes, Congress, the House of Representatives in this instance, not the full Congress, because we don't like to say it that way, but the Senate is a part of the Congress. So we have an obligation to ourselves as the House of Representatives, one branch of this Congress. But within our uh, branch, we have these caucuses. We call the Democrats, we call our organization the Democratic Caucus. The Republicans, 
the Republican conference, the Democratic voters look to us, Democrats, to police our own, and we do. There is time and time again indicators that we do. Now, on the other side of the aisle, the Republican conference seemed to be loath to police its own. If anybody in the Democratic caucus were to attend a white nationalist or white supremacist meeting, I guarantee you, Jim Clyburn would be at the front of the line with a resolution bringing it uh, to the caucus to do uh, what is necessary. We have done it with our own for misspeaking sometimes. Now, uh, it may not have been uh, a, a misspeech, but we treat it that way. For some reason, that's not done with the Republican conference. And the, Republic, uh, the public needs to weigh in on that. But just to, to briefly follow up, my wife asked me after the State of the Union, she said, when did it become acceptable? for members of Congress to heckle and shout at a president during this State of the Union address. And I pointed out that I was in the chamber with you, Congressman Clyburn, when Joe Wilson shouted at President Obama, which as far as I know is the first time that I know of, maybe you, you have a longer memory about it than I do, but it seemed to be the first time and an overt heckling of, of, of just, it was shocking at the time. And things have gotten kind of dysfunctional, more dysfunctional since then. And I think Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Congresswoman Boebert at the State of the Union displayed the kind of behavior that if a Democrat did that, I don't think there'd be hesitation about taking some action. Well, when that happened, I went to the floor. I put up the resolution a revolution of disapproval of what he did. And that resolution passed. And it was bipartisan in the vote. Another okay. member uh, of the South Carolina delegation here in the House of Representatives on the, and the Republican voted for it. And guess what happened? They, he lost his next election for having done it. We passed a resolution saying to Joe Wilson that this Congress disapproved of what you've done, and the Republicans voted out, the one Republican that voted for it. So that tells the public a little bit about where the Republicans are uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff. Congressman, you're well known as being one of the most gifted storytellers in the US Congress, and we were wondering if we could prevail on you to reach back in your memory, not too far, and take us inside a story that is, I think, historic, very important for American history. And, and what brings it to mind is the landmark nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. And it, and it ties to that moment, which was your decision to endorse Joe Biden's candidacy, as Paul was saying a moment ago, right before the South Carolina primary. Now, in Jonathan Allen's book, he recounts a scene backstage at the debate in South Carolina four days before the primary, where apparently, according to his account, you thought President Biden might be on the verge of blowing it by not making an explicit promise to nominate a Black woman to the court. So I guess I have a two-part question. Did Jonathan Allen get that scene right? Is that the way you saw it? And why did you think that that, that act was so important for Joe Biden to do? 
Well, if you think about the birthday of our country, was it 1776, 1777, whatever you may consider to be the date, it's pretty much two and a half centuries that this country has been around, better than 240 years. In that 240 years, we'd never had an African-American woman seriously uh, discussed uh, to be on the Supreme Court of the United States. And when Ronald Reagan decided to put a woman on the Supreme Court, he said he would do it. No one said one word. Nobody said that's affirmative action. No one said that's discrimination against everybody else. Everybody said that's a significant step forward. He did it and everybody called it a great thing to do. We have had, and I think Paul knows this, we all know this. For as long as I can remember, there has been a quote of Jewish seat on the Supreme Court. And we can name some of the people who held that. Nobody called that anything but the right thing to do. So we're going into this election. I want Joe Biden to win. My late wife said to me the night after our fish fry, biggest fish fry I'd ever had, over seven to 500 people there, uh, the police department, the fire department came, said nobody else can come. We had 20 some odd candidates running for president and four or five of them good friends of ours I went home that night, my wife's diabetes was getting the best of her at the time, and she couldn't come to the fish fry. So around midnight that night, as she was going through her uh, peritoneal treatment, I sat at her bedside, and I said to her, I said, no, we're gonna have a tough time this year. We just had the most successful fish fry that we've ever had, and uh, we've got over 20 people running for president. Some of them are close friends of ours. It's gonna be tough. She said to me that night, I don't care how many people are running. I don't care how many of, many of them are close friends of ours. If we want to win this election, we had better nominate Joe Biden. Now, that's the backdrop to all of this. We're going into the primary. I'm, I'm going to be for Joe. By this time, Emily had passed away that the following September, and we are now into January in February, really leading up to the cycle of the primary. Uh, and I'm talking to my daughters. I have three of them, asking them about all of their friends. I'm looking at the results coming in first hour and Joe Biden does extremely poor. New Hampshire, poor. Going into Nevada, not much better. Losing three primaries. And here I am faced with a dilemma. I've got what my wife said to me. I've got what my daughters are saying to me. That's what's being talked about among African-American women all over. And so the Sunday night before that uh, debate, I said to Joe Biden, I think that we can break through here in South Carolina, but I think we need to do something to reassure African-American voters that you're going to have their backs. What can we do? Number one, let's make it explicitly clear. And if you get the opportunity, you will appoint or nominate an African-American woman to serve on the Supreme Court. That's the backdrop to that. And of course, we get into the debate. The first part of the debate, I'm sitting there, and there were a couple of opportunities that were not taken. When the break came, I went backstage. And I said to <laughs> candidate Biden, I think you missed a couple of opportunities out here tonight, but I don't think you can leave the stage tonight not doing this because I think it's critical. Uh, if we are going to assure 
the voters in this state, uh, that you're going to have their backs. The very last thing he said on the stage that night, not the last, close to the last, was that he would do that. He got the loudest applause of the night. And we went on to win South Carolina by, well, they said 29. By my count, it was 30 points. Man, oh man, oh man. Well, no wonder you're a hero to so many, including me, because I endorsed Joe Biden. I mean, I, by then I'm just an older former congressman. Nobody cares that much. But I endorsed now President Biden in the New Hampshire primary, and it was tough. It was it was uphill and uphill and tough all the way. And he he didn't seem to have the the energy. And what you did gave him literally gave him the rocket boost that saved his candidacy and. And as James Cardell, who saluted you on MS, MSNBC, the night of your endorsement, declared, said you'd save the Democratic Party. So history, you you are going to go down in history for lots of things. But I think that's going to be an important part of, of the legacy and, and history of, of the country. I, I'm just curious, is there is there anything else about that endorsement decision that you made and the process uh, that went into it that stands out to you now? on reflection two years later, anything you haven't talked about or that strikes you differently now in the context of everything that we have lived through since then and are living through right now? The backdrop was, sorry, I just told you, but you know, when you're looking at all these losses and you're saying, can this happen? So I go home, this is Thursday, the votes were over here for the week and everybody's getting ready to go uh, to, down to South Carolina for the big debate. But just before I left the floor, that Thursday afternoon, I was, for some reason, I was hanging around the vote, the floor, the vote was over. Marsha Fudge came to the floor and, and, and said to me, you need to be, there's some people in the, in, in the uh, Lincoln room, uh, which is one of the rooms I have a little bit of control over as, as the majority whip and says, we need that media. So I went down, I didn't, I didn't know who was in the room. I went down to the room. It was Marsha Fudge, Cedric Richmond, and Bennett Thompson. Yeah. It says, man, we all, for Joe Biden, you got to endorse. I says, I'm going to. It says, you got to do it now. I said, I don't think so, not now. I can't figure out when, but I will. This is, when I got home that night, to South Carolina, there was a note for me that my longtime accountant had passed away and the funeral was going to be 11 o'clock the next morning. So I decided to go to that funeral, which was in the lower part of Richland County where I live, and I could go to that funeral on my way down to Charleston for the debate. Lo and behold, I go to the church. I got there early as I usually do for these kinds of events and walk around to speak to people. And I went down the aisle of the church, paid my respects. And as I turned to leave, a lady sitting on the front pew all the way to the end of the pew beckoned to me. And I went over to her. I had never seen her before, didn't know who she was. And she said to me, I need to ask you a question. And if you don't want anybody to hear the answer, please lean down and whisper it in my ear. And I leaned down and she said to me, who are you going to vote for in this primary? And I whispered in her ear, Joe Biden. 
She snapped back and she had a look on her face that was just, I, don't, I can't explain it. And she said, I needed to hear that. And this community is waiting to hear from you. This was Friday. And that's when I decided, not only am I going to endorse, but I'm going to do it in a way that I think will create the surge that we need uh, in this primary. And so I got on the phone on my way to Charleston. I called my public, I called my uh, media guy, and I says, I'm going to make this endorsement. I want you to find Joe Biden's camp, campaign. I want to meet with him Sunday night. I want you to get ready to do some robocalls, get ready to do some video ads. We're going to flood the airwaves. We don't have but a, a week, but we got to win this election. That's the way we did it. I, well, you know, what I like about that story, there are several things I like about that story. There's a lot I like about that story. One is my, my wife is also an Emily, and I fully endorse always listening to your wife, especially if she's named Emily. And look, there's something to this because obviously President Biden listened to the wisdom that you imparted to him backstage. And it's, it's sort of a lost quality of leadership the ability to listen to people around you and to take advice and to take input. Now, look, I'm a former congressional staffer. So of course I believe in the importance <laughs> of giving advice and having people listen to it. But too often in political culture, it's seen as a sign of strength to what's like the Donald Trump thing. I, only I can solve it. I know the answer to everything. No, real leadership and real wisdom is, is knowing how to lean on great people around you, be they your, your wife or a longtime political friend and advisor. You wrote, interestingly, in an op-ed, Congressman Clyburn, back in March of 2020 of then-candidate Joe Biden, that Joe, I'm quoting here, can and must do better. And you knew what was preventing his best qualities from getting through to the voters. It was Joe not being Joe. Now, obviously, President Biden is to some degree struggling a bit right now, this time with low approval ratings. And there's been a sense that the White House hasn't been able to convey that the president is truly in touch with Americans' real sense of frustration and exhaustion and economic anxiety, which is strange because President Biden has the most down-to-earth, humble roots experience of perhaps any president in living memory. So it, today, is this still a case of Joe not fully being Joe? And did he start to address that in the State of the Union? Well, you're exactly right. He did start to address that in the State of the Union. What I heard in that State of the Union is what I've been waiting for for some time now. Joe being Joe. He connected with the American people the way he always did. But for strange reasons, you know, when you get beyond uh, your own bailiwick, he knew how to relate to the voters of uh, Delaware have been relating to him for a long time. Then all of a sudden you get all these handlers around you and they start telling you what to do. Uh, present company uh, accepted. Uh, and, and all of a sudden you're no longer yourself. And every now and then I have to say that to my, my uh, staffers, okay, I hear what you say, but just remember it's me out there looking in that voter's eye, asking them to vote for me and then uh, it's my job to respond to, so tell me what you think I ought to say, and I may or may not say uh, what you think. So Joe just had to get to be in Joe. If you remember, in that endorsement, I made very clear, I know Joe, we know Joe, but most importantly, 
Joe knows us. Now, that was just clear to me. My late wife was from a little 22-acre uh, farm, came to school, uh, to college in a pickup truck that didn't own a truck at all. She would go to church. And then everybody uh, in the church would be keeping notes of what the uh, sermon was all about. She kept notes on how people reacted to me. When we shook hands, we approached each other. And after church, she would sit down with me over dinner and says, now, I think you need to talk to Mrs. So-and-so. I noticed uh, that when you spoke to her, there's a problem. You need to check that out. These are the kind of notes she took in church. And so when she told me that Joe Biden was our uh, best bet, if not our only bet, I listened to her. And so that is the kind of thing that I thought Joe has connected with her over the years. She had an emotional connection with Joe Biden that even I did not know. So if they just let him be Joe and let him talk the way he knows how to talk. And I used to tell him, uh, we used to do radio programs together, the old Charter Rose show I used to do with Joe. But that's how I got to know Joe, doing these. I said to him, I said, look, you're running for the presidency. You ain't running, you ain't talking on the Senate floor. You let the people know exactly what your proposal is going to do for them and what they're going to do for their families and what those proposals will do for their, their communities. Just be yourself. And I used to advise him a long time ago about his stuttering. I said, look, come clean with the American people. Let everybody know these are not gaffes that people are writing about, that you have overcome a problem that a lot of children, young children overcome. And share that with the American people. And I guarantee you the turning point in our national virtual convention was when that young boy stood up and talked about what Joe Biden had meant to him as a stutterer. That changed people's attitudes. And just last night, I spent last evening over dinner with about 20 reporters, Washington reporters. And I said to them, when Joe came clean about his stuttering, y'all stopped talking about uh, gaffes. It's true. It's true. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I, I, my wife Pego and I had the great privilege of coming to a wonderful event that that you held, and your wife was there, and you were so kind, and she was she was so kind. I just wish Pego had listened to your wife about what she ought to tell me, because I think <laughs> I might have had a different result when I ran for the U.S. Senate, because I felt squashed by my staff and pulled in too many different directions and. Just didn't feel quite like myself, but 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 that's some of the best that's some of the best advice I've ever I've ever heard. Now, I just uh, move into another topic. You you are the third ranking member of the House of Representatives. Our vice president is historically a black woman. Our hopefully newest Supreme Court justice is, uh, we hope, uh, a black African American woman. And we of course had eight amazing years with Barack Obama um, as president. So you might say there is some progress happening in America when it comes to representation and political power for African-Americans. But at the same time, you recently warned and you said, look, there, there was a lot of progress in the 1800s 
But something happened in 1895 when South Carolina came up with a new constitution that took away all the rights that have been given to people of color. Now, you said, we seem to be moving in the same direction. We better be careful. And you are a very prescient person. So in what ways do you see us moving in the right direction? And in what ways are we moving in the wrong direction? And I, I'm, I'm curious about compared to where we were when you started your political career, are you, do you feel encouraged? Do you feel worried by where we are and, and the direction we're, we're heading in? I'm in both camps and I am worried. You see, after the institution of slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation took place. Well, we had two, I have to get the history right here. One freeing the slaves in the District of Columbia and a second proclamation that freed the slaves in the other slave states to be effective January 1, 1863. Mm -hmm. Now, that was an executive order. Right. And the whole reason for the movie Lincoln that I, I thought, I read some go to movies, but I did go to uh, watch that movie, was Lincoln's effort to get the 13th Amendment passed, which is what really freed the slaves, the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. So I want to say that so your listeners will not go out there and say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I know exactly what I'm talking about. So from 1863, 1865 is when the states ratified the 13th Amendment, freeing the slaves. Then we had to pass the 14th Amendment to apply due process and equal protection of the law to the former slaves. Then we had to pass the 15th Amendment uh, to give the former slaves the right to vote. All those three amendments working together pushed us into a period that we call the period of Reconstruction. Right. But most people don't realize that Reconstruction only lasts 12 years. The Tillman Hayes Compromise of 1776 uh, is what thrust us into a broadening uh, to Reconstruction. And if you look at what was going on Leading up to January 6th, it was an effort on the part of the former president's people to thrust this election into the House of Representatives as it was done in 1876. Yeah. I don't know what compromise he was looking for. He was going to Pence to, to deny that, put this election uh, in the House of Representatives, and I might be able to hold on to power. That is what happened. And I see all those similarities happening again. So after 18, right around the same time, the, the, the Supreme Court, in the, the Supreme Court decision of 1872, the Cushok decision, and I may not be pronouncing that correctly because it's a Louisiana case, and they have some funny ways to pronounce names uh, down in Louisiana, but that was 1872 is what started the cascading into Jim Crow. Pleasant versus Ferguson in 1896 sealed the deal. So, on the wall of my conference room, you see eight great pictures of eight African Americans who served in the United States Congress from South Carolina between 1870 and 1897. And after 1897, 95 years before another Black was elected, and that's yours truly. So, anything wow. that's happened before can happen again. And so I say to people who tell me, oh, we're making this much progress here, we're making that much progress over there. How much progress was made between 1870 and 1895? Now then, how much progress was lost for the next 95 years? Yes, sir. That's why I said, we'd better be careful. Anything that's happened before 
can happen again. Because we now see Supreme Court decisions. A Supreme Court decision in Shelby v. Holder nine years ago that has gutted the 65 Voting Rights Act. And we see states now putting in place voter suppression and voter nullification laws, much like they did in the 1880s and 90s. We are repeating that same history. Now the question is, we, have we learned anything from what George Santayana told us? If you fail to learn the lessons of history, you're bound to repeat them. So the question is, have we learned lessons of history or have we failed to learn those lessons? And are we going to repeat those? That historical context makes so much sense. And it really is incredible when, when you contrast that feeling that we have made some palpable progress and how quickly it can all not, it, it doesn't just get snatched away by accident. It's, it's intentional. And that's, that's a lot of what we're seeing on maybe, maybe a happier note, maybe not. I, I, I want to once again, sort of prevail on you to open up the memory banks because you've had such a successful career in government so far. I want to emphasize so far, uh, hardly done. And I, I just wanted to see if there was, there was a memory or a story that stands out for you. Maybe something that, that people haven't heard about before as you think back on the career you've, you've led up to this point. If I may, let me take your listeners to something much more current. We hear a lot of talk today about something they're now calling critical race theory. That's being bandaged about in such a way as to give certain people an excuse for banning books, for kicking Black history teachings out of schools. We don't want uh, white children to feel uncomfortable about what's going on in the classroom. And so I opened up Black History Month last month on February 1 at Gonzaga High School. And I noticed when I got to the school that day, there were a lot of parents there. And I just said to myself, I can't imagine that this many parents will just show up at this school on February 1 every year. I got a funny feeling that these parents are here because they're a little bit uh, concerned about what this black congressman is going to say. And so when I got before the audience that day, I decided not to disappoint them. I said, look, I know you've been hearing all this talk about critical race theory, talk that none of you are subjected to in, in this high school. That's something for college campuses. But let me tell you what you are subjected to at this high school. Something that I like to call critical racial facts. And I looked up in the ceiling and I said to them, it's a fact that Thomas Edison invented these light bulbs that you see illuminating this place. But it's also a fact that Thomas Edison could not get that light bulb to work. It would come on and it would overheat and he couldn't keep it on. And then somebody told Thomas Edison about a guy up in Boston, Massachusetts named Lewis Latimer and said to him, Mr. Edison, if you go up there and, and sit down with Lewis Latimer, you might be able to get that filament that he's just uh, invented and put that filament in your light bulb and it might work. Edison got outside of his comfort zone and went up to sit down with this black guy, Lewis Latimer, the son of former slaves, who had invented this filament. And it was just what he needed to make the light bulb work. And I said to them, that is a critical race fact. So why is it okay 
to teach about Thomas Edison, but not okay to teach about Louis Latimer. And then I went through a few other things that Charles drew in blood plasma, that kind of stuff. Uh, and everybody was pleased with it. Not only pleased, but I've heard from a lot of my caucus members, one just yesterday that told me, and he opened up his thing. He said, I just want to say something to the whip. This is another member of Congress uh, that I took him up uh, on his approach to black history and critical race theory, and it worked perfectly. And then he said, and I did so without attribution. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I get it. I get it. So I, I, I'm going to ask you a, a personal question. And, and the, con the context for me is that I had the temerity, for whatever reason, to run for the U.S. Senate, didn't make it, got clobbered, and have been enjoying life as a private citizen since. I'm lucky I get to talk to folks like you and, and other of my former colleagues. Now, you previously said or written that you said, I, I do know what it's like to suffer disappointments and be prematurely subject to nudges to get out of the political game. And so I'm curious, are you still getting subjected to those nudges? And uh, I certainly hope not. But what do you say to, what do you say to those folks? Well, the reason I talked about it, I know what it's like to be disappointed. I lost three times before I got elected. And a friend of mine said to me, what are you going to do now? You know what they say, three strikes and you are. And I said to my friend, that's a baseball rule. And nobody should live their lives by a baseball rule. And so to me, as I said in my uh, memoirs, Blessed Experience, for your listeners, it, Amazon readers gives it five stars. So it's not a, a joke book. I said that all of my experiences have not been pleasant but I've considered all of them to be blessings. And so I looked upon those losses as being blessings, just like those wins have been. My late wife also said something to me that she didn't say to me directly. She wrote it on a little sticker and put it on the mirror in my bathroom. And she said to me, when you win, brag gently. When you lose, weep softly. And I have lived by that. You're going to win some, and you're going to lose some. We had a heck of a win with the endorsement. Of I didn't win him over with my choice for the Supreme Court, the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. And so I bragged gently when Joe Biden won. I weeped softly when he didn't select my choice. But all of these are learning experiences. And so you don't get upset when you don't win. The fact of the matter is, stay in the game. You may not win. You don't stay in the game. You will not win. So Paul, stay in the game. That's perfect advice. It cannot be tampered with. But if I were to add a third plank, it would be get your friends to do some, some loud bragging for you, like we did at the top of the show. It's okay if it's not coming from you for us to say that you've made the most consequential decision in recent American political history. That's that's okay if it's coming from us. I'll, I wanna just very quickly, as we as we wind to the end of the show, just a, a couple of things that are, that are going on right now. There's been a lot of discussion about the Build Back Better agenda, the fact that that kind of wrapper around a whole set of policy items appears done, it's dead. In the State of the Union, the president did mention a few items from that previous piece of legislation that he'd still like to get done. Do you think that there are items from that original package that was discussed through 2021 that are going to make it through both chambers of Congress in 2022? Do you think, do you predict that any of these ultimately will make it into law this year? 
Absolutely. I think we're going to do something about drug prices. I think we're going to do something about uh, restoring the child tax credit. It may get means tested, and I don't have a problem with means testing it. I think we are going to pass a significant portion of what we had in the so-called Build Back Better. And I think that the American people are going to be very, very happy with that. So when you look at what the president laid out in the State of the Union, I think we're going to build upon that going forward. We won't get everything done that he called for. He called for us dealing with the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and dealing with the Freedom to Vote Act. There is going to be, I think, a compromise coming on voting. Probably won't be as much as I want, but I think you will see an Electoral uh, Reform uh, Act going forward. And I'm hoping that language will be in there that will prevent the nullification of laws that like some people are trying to do. I mean, the nullification of, of elections, as some people are trying to do. So yes, I think there, there are going to be some significant things done to add to the Rescue Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, which I consider to be the, the glass half full. And we're going to do some things to continue filling up this glass. It's that's really good to hear. And one of the things we've talked about on the show with other guests and 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 been thinking about is the kind of historic, the history of what happens in midterms. And right now, a lot of people are uh, saying Democrats are facing very strong headwinds. The, the president in his State of the Union, I think, did a masterful job and has really sort of kicked off the sprint to the sprint to the midterms. But what from your from where you're sitting, what are you and your colleagues talking about, about what Democrats need to do to be successful in the midterm and hopefully turn history on its head and keep our majority to, so we can keep on moving forward? We got to talk about the glass being half full. The Rescue Act, 25% full. Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, 50% half full. We have not done voting, which would get us 75%, 75%, and we have not done a Build Back Better which will continue to fill up the glass. So let's talk about the glass being half full and what we need to do to continue filling up the glass. Don't waste people, uh, people's time talking about the glass being half empty. That is what we've got to do. Run on our accomplishments and let the people know if you like the Rescue Act, you like the bipartisan infrastructure bill, look what, if we add this to it, what we add this other thing to it, that's what we've got to do. Let people know that they got something for their votes the last time. And there's much more to come for their votes the next time. That's what you've got to do. You can't be running around, uh, moping around, talking about what you hadn't done. Talk about what you have done. Well, I hope it's been obvious to our radio listeners, our podcast listeners, and our video viewers why Majority Whip Jim Clyburn is one of the most celebrated leaders in America and in American politics in, in recent memory. And I have to add that while I've occasionally been complimented for having a pleasant radio voice, Congressman, if you ever had those nudges prevail upon you and you decide you want a post-congressional career, your voice could put us out of business. You are invited back absolutely anytime, but just don't, don't, don't put us out of business on the radio. It's, it's absolutely been a pleasure to have you on Beyond Politics. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me. And it's always good to get reacquainted with a former colleague. Thank you, Paul, for having me on your show. Congressman, it's been just a great pleasure. You're, you're, you are one of my greatest heroes. Thank you.